Hello and welcome to Anything Music, the podcast where we talk about anything related to music. My name is Joanna, and today we have our guest, Tatiana Friesen. Hello. Okay, so Tatiana used to be my viola teacher slash violin teacher. I actually switched <laughs> to viola because of her. Um, so she was my first ever viola teacher. Um, she will always have that honor. And presently, <laughs> she is a Baroque violist living in Winnipeg. Um, she teaches privately and runs her own Baroque viola, uh, not Baroque viola ensemble, Baroque <laughs> ensemble um, called Musica Poetica. It's on a series of concerts in Winnipeg. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> Myself. I'm a violist. <laughs> um, I First of all, I'll correct you quickly on the running the Baroque ensemble because I think that's how I started it. And I'm trying to not do that anymore. So I'm, okay. a, I'm a Baroque violist working on delegating and collaborating with uh, my partners in Musica Poetica. Um, but it is, the, the ensemble is very much my baby. That would be a good way of describing it. Um, yeah, I feel like you kind of just summed up. I do a lot of teaching and I also play. So... I need you to define for the people what exactly Baroque is, because yes. I feel like a lot of people listening to this probably won't understand what that is unless you explain it to them. Yes, it's like a lot of people that I see on the bus. Um, so the Baroque period in music, uh, we usually say is about from 1600 to 1750. Um, and we end with the year in which Johann Sebastian Bach died. We go, okay, he's gone, the Baroque period has ended. Um, and the, the period right before Baroque would have been in the Renaissance, and right after is the Classical period. So you're coming out of a period where there's a lot of complicated, um, mixed-up, cathedral-y sounding choral music, and going into a period where um, uh, Western art music was defined by a lot of patterns and... Um, setting up certain expectations and then sometimes subverting them and sometimes fulfilling them. So Baroque music in between is kind of like this weird bridge between really complicated academic sounding music and uh, really math-y, almost popsy kind of music. Okay. This is the first time I described it this way. My description will kind of change every day depending right. on how my brain is doing. So uh, what do you think of that as a, you, you, you know music as well. How, how do you think of that as a definition um, of the period? I actually like that. I like how you describe that it has like a poppy side of it because I feel like it has a lot of like um, like uh, bass lines mm -hmm. that could be very relatable to pop. Yep, sometimes they're the same as pop. Great! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have any examples but there, there's definitely if you break down uh, like a, a baroque dance with a kind of repeated baseline and then you take like a I don't know Britney Spears something or other you'll you'll find you'll find long stretches where it's oh it's actually exactly the same notes <laughs> we've just decorated it differently I think there's lots of like videos on YouTube where people yes, have taken yeah. like pop songs or just any song and like made the baroque version of it yeah them. like this in the style of J.S. Bach yeah. or uh, there's yeah yeah you can go down some great YouTube rabbit holes on that subject yeah. And so how is it that you came from playing, like, the standard violin viola 
to playing period instruments, like in the Baroque. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the transition you're talking about is going from playing um, on an instrument that evolved a lot from about sort of 1725 into perhaps uh, maybe World War II, kind of 1940s period is, is when we decided, okay, this is what the viola, what the violin is now. Um, it didn't change a whole lot, but we changed what kind of strings we use, and we changed the bow. And so I kind of performed that change backwards, <laughs> going going from playing on a string with quite on an instrument with quite a lot of tension, um, which made it loud and fit well with steel strings, and using a bow that is is made for um, a wide variety of sounds. You can play very, very loud for a long time with a modern bow. Um, and it doesn't really matter what part of the bow you're in. You can always be loud if you need to be loud. Um, and when I got interested in playing uh, historically informed Baroque performance, it meant getting a bow that, that tapers towards the ends so that um, your loudest part of the bow is, is fixed. You've got... Um, close to the middle of the bows where you can be the loudest, and as you get towards the tip, uh, the sound just decays. And you can do a lot of really interesting stuff with a bow like that if you also have gut strings, which have uh, a lot of overtones available to them. They're not very loud, but they are very interesting sounding strings. Um, and if you've got that, you can also use less tension on your instrument. So everything everything's a little bit more soft and flexible and um that means that your your sounds are going to be more nuanced or you can be more nuanced if you if you choose to be um all but you will you will play usually in a smaller space um and different kinds of music so it's a style that's very much about details and and very immediate kind of fancy little notes rather than great big swelling loud kind of epic sounding st I'm doing big gestures with my yeah. arms right now which doesn't come across very well on a podcast um, so that's what I did and the why and the how of it um, is harder to describe uh, I remember as a kid having a, a cassette recording of Valdi's Four Seasons and just being glued to the cassette player um, when I was about 10 or so and before I started actually playing viola at all, I was 13 when I started playing, and and just loving Vivaldi and thinking he was so great, and uh, and that kind of stayed with me as I uh, picked up the modern viola and took lessons through my teenage years on that, and then um, started my bachelor's degree in modern viola performance. I always had this like this other sound in my head that, and I'm sure this performance wasn't even uh, on period instruments or or any particular like historically informed intention, uh, but it was still Vivaldi and it still kind of planted this seed of sound in my head. Um, and then one summer, I think, I was actually uh, invited to, to participate in a sort of a Baroque, like, boot camp 
with Eric Lussier, who is uh, a very well-respected harpsichordist in Winnipeg. And he's responsible for the former uh, uh, Music Baroque Ensemble, hmm. which is what, what Winnipeg had for hmm, uh, how long they were operating. Um, long enough for that to be what most Winnipeggers remember as our, our Baroque Ensemble. Uh, he was in charge of that. And I guess it must have been shortly after they folded that he he had the bug and he wanted to keep on doing this with somebody. So he found a bunch of students and I was one of them. And that's when I realized you could play music uh, where vibrato was not very important, <laughs> which was very attractive to me. Um, and where you made up extra notes to go along with the ones that were printed on the page. and And where there was a great deal of like... It was kind of orchestral music, but you didn't have as many people to play it, and and the listening that was involved with that was more detailed and and more interesting than than I was used to doing in the symphonic texture. So that was interesting to me, and I kind of saved that away in my head along with the Vivaldi files. And and later when I got opportunities to actually play on a baroque instrument with the gut strings and and work with people who do this for a living, um, I started to realize that I could actually indulge this interest more. So you went through the early music program at McGill. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that transition like moving from Winnipeg um, to Montreal and then all of a sudden like studying on this Baroque uh, like period instrument that's probably, I imagine that was very different from studying at places like CMU or U of M. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that go? <laughs> it uh, I eased into it actually, McGill wasn't my first thing. I spent, hmm, well, first I did three summers um, worth of of the Tafel Musique program that they do in summer in Toronto. I did that in, I think the first time was 2011, and the last time was 2014. Um, three times in that stretch I went. And uh, all of those times, I think I was borrowing equipment. Or certainly the first time I was playing on a, a bow that didn't, didn't belong to me, and I was borrowing a antique viola. Um, and it must have been when I came back from that the first time that I started brainstorming how I could actually acquire more instruments. So I have my modern setup on the one hand, and then have a viola. It wouldn't need to be a Baroque viola, but a viola that I could um, string with gut and take off the chin rest and all this modern stuff um, <laughs> and and just try to recreate what I'd done uh, that summer in Toronto. So so I bought a viola from Long McQuaid <laughs> and uh, and I actually commissioned a bow from Stephen Marvin who's a bow maker in Toronto and has a lot of dealings with Tafel Music there. And by the time I had that equipment option that I could, I could go and out and teach modern viola, um, and and come home and practice baroque viola, um, and there was kind of enough stuff that I'd I'd picked up in Toronto that I could uh, help myself remember it and and just coach myself through these things. And the great thing about uh, the repertoire of this period is that you can get a lot of it in manuscript form online for free. So so if you're really determined, you can self-teach a, a fair bit of this once you've got a start and, and got some sounds in your ears 
of how people tend to interpret this stuff. Right, because all the, like, copyright laws. Exactly. They're <laughs> you dead. You don't even have to worry about <laughs> There, You can still, you can sp- still spend money and, and uh, keep an editor um, fed if you, if you want to buy, like, a, a sort of urtext edition or, or a, critical edition of an like old a nice piece. Hard copy nice and yeah and, and when you have when you have a, a piece that's got maybe three different manuscript sources and there's debate about which one is the most, you know, closest to the original or uh, what do we even mean by that and all this stuff. There's there is interesting work for editors to do with old manuscripts and it is actually very useful for us as performers to have somebody who's made a nice clean edition and has you know, a whole preface that says, okay, these are these changes that I made, and based on this manuscript, I've decided this is an E-sharp, and all this, all those decisions are, are still useful. But you can also just get original facsimiles that people have very kindly uploaded to the internet. Now, Free. do you think that living it, because it seems that you've just, like, taken things and built what you wanted to create, which was, like, a Baroque setup, or do you think this would have changed if you were living in a bigger city, such as, like, I don't know, Toronto or, like, Montreal at the time that you were doing this? Because hmm. in Winnipeg, like, we have limited options. Like, Wilder and Davis only comes once a year. Like, I mean, I don't know, like, how many period instruments they have, but, I mean, right. we just have, like, Long and McQuaid, and yeah. we don't really have, like, specialty stores. So no, yeah, and even now, when I when I need to buy strings, I order them online. Yeah. Um it is a different thing, and especially now that I've, I've done my studies in Montreal in a city where there's a scene already. There are lots of Baroque ensembles playing there. Um, lots of, like, soloists will come from, from Europe regularly and play with the ensembles in Montreal, and it's very much a, like a, a, a culture of early music there. And here we have some very good choirs and 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 some isolated individuals who are really really into this stuff but not not so much of a a sense of everyone working together and being like kind of a, a conference of early music in Winnipeg but this does not exist yeah. um so if i had grown up someplace like montreal or even toronto i guess I would have been able to make more assumptions about what I was doing, and it wouldn't have been... I think I would probably own it less. Hmm. And the the reality of having to kind of struggle and make it up and make some mistakes and and just really experiment with what resources I had, um, I think they influence the way that I play now. So after your like early music studies in Montreal, you returned to Winnipeg. Um, <laughs> So how did you make the decision to, after living in a city with all of those things, like a early music community, um, and then coming back to Winnipeg where that doesn't exist and you're kind of pioneering your own way, or as you said, there isn't really like a conference. Um, what was, what were like the main factors that went into doing that? Into coming back at all? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, <laughs> you had an excuse to leave. Why aren't you, why are you back? Um... <laughs> It's true. I actually, I, I had several people in Montreal, um, kind of showing me like, oh, this is this is what you could be doing here. It would be so easy to just have a, an early music career in Montreal. Why don't you just stay? Um, and uh, it seems to be that more people than not think I'm kind of odd for coming back. Um, 
I'd have to say I came back because I love Winnipeg. And there's there's a lot of just like family connection and I'm a homebody. I like to st- I like to stay home. If I go away from home, I like to come back. <laughs> I like to know where all my stuff is. Um, so I have to say that sometimes it's just laziness, actually, and just a desire for comfort <laughs> and knowing knowing what to expect. Um, so that's on the one on the one hand, and then also on the hand of completely not lazy at all and actually making myself a lot of work. Um, I like being involved in something that's not already a set of assumptions where there's there's room for uh, decision making and uh, getting to choose how things will be and and there's there's a lot more excitement to finding somebody in Winnipeg who for example plays the harpsichord or is a like an amateur Vivaldi scholar and and all this sort of thing if I was in Montreal I wouldn't be nearly as excited about finding those people as I get to be when I'm here so that's interesting yeah i I like being kind of part of a geek culture that's kind of underground and kind of weird so (laughs) i get Um, that here so then musica poetica which is your concert series slash ensemble Mm -hmm. that um happens here um so tell me a little bit about how i guess that you were doing some musica poetica stuff while you were still living in montreal is that correct yeah Um, so I started my master's degree in the fall of 2015, and in the summer of 2016, um, I came back for my break and put on a concert with a harpsichordist and a flutist, and, and a soprano, as a soprano. Uh, and that, that was just a concert. I called the concert Musica Poetica, and I sort of kind of borrowed the term from someone who also borrowed the term. It's a it's a technical term from the uh, Renaissance and maybe earlier period that refers to the the communicative like the specific explicit communicative power of music, of of tones and sounds and chords to communicate a, a certain idea. Um, it's the title also of Dietrich Bartel's book on uh, Baroque uh here it is. <laughs> Musical rhetorical figures in German Baroque music. Um, and I think I had his textbook on my shelf. I was thinking, oh, what am I going to call this concert? I need, to pr- I need to market it somehow. And I was looking over at my books and going, ah, oh, Musica Poetica, that's pretty. <laughs> um, and so I just put on this show with some friends. And I told them, uh, we'll split the proceeds at the door. I don't know if we're going to make any money. Would you play some music with me? And so that's what we did. And we filled the house and uh had had enough to give everybody a like two hundred dollar honorarium <laughs> and the response was really exciting it was the first clue that i had that there's actually a scene for this in winnipeg there there is an audience and people will come and listen even if they're like for now mostly my friends um and so that i think it must have been that winter based on the success of that um, I asked these people who had played with me if they'd be willing to do this again and maybe uh, make it kind of regular, and they were willing. And uh, so we did something uh, that December, when I was back again after another semester of grad studies, and it became a tradition that whenever I came back from Montreal for a break, I would put on a concert with these people, and uh, it was. It was an interesting experience being in Montreal and and doing the admin for a concert that was to take place in Winnipeg. 
mm-hmm. lots of emails and uh, lots of trying to delegate tasks to people who were actually in town. And then when I would arrive, it was a lot of like finishing up details and making sure this had happened and this other thing and then rehearsing yet and putting on a show. Uh, so I'm glad to be doing this from Winnipeg now. Yeah. It's so gotten easier. At some of your earlier concerts, I remember seeing like crayons and paper mm-hmm. and like art supplies and like your idea of a performance setting or like an audience participation seemed to be a little bit different than what like the standard like someone going to a concert hall and just sitting and watching and not doing anything so what do you think makes attending your concerts different and what do you think like the role of the audience is at musica poetica or like your philosophies in general about it are compared to like more standard things like going to see the wso or something yeah that's a big one (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) I'll, we I'll think about I'll, things here. <laughs> exactly, music, and any anything music, everything music. Um, yeah, I've I'm not sure where exactly this all came from. Um, maybe partly out of the fact that a lot of my work is with small humans, mm. young humans, um, or um, I particularly enjoy teaching music to people who believe that they can't do music. Um, to kind of turning this this thing that we've made very specialized and very professional and um, kind of put on a pedestal and turning it back into, or not even turning it back, it's always been and it always will be something that belongs to just humans. And it's, it's part of just what we do is communicate with sounds. And we can all do this with speech, so why don't we all do this with um, non-speech sounds? as well. Um, why is that such a special thing that you have to, you know, be some, some genius or, or trained from a young age to do it? Um, and the more I think about that in terms of what performance actually is and who gets to do music, um, it led me into questions about how do we receive music? How do we listen? And how can we make the experience of, of being at a concert more uh, more mutual, more, more of a feedback kind of thing response rather than just a commodity, commodification of music. Um, and, um, I remember reading a book by Christopher Small called Musicking that spoke of, of music as a verb. And he includes in, in the act of doing music, um, everything from uh, listening to uh, sweeping up the floors after a concert to uh, editing, arranging, playing an instrument, taking music lessons, uh, talking about music. This is musicking that right now that we're doing. Um, all just the, the way that it kind of permeates our whole culture. It's, it's everywhere. And we're always doing it, whether we recognize that or not. Um, I realized that I I would like kind of I would kind of like to think of the audience as another as maybe a choir or an orchestra um, who arrive and they're unrehearsed <laughs> but they are telling us what what the music is and what the music means based on how how they respond when we're finished playing something so one of my big th- things is 
um, the way we think about when you're allowed to applaud. And there's, uh, there's a, like an education of audiences that has gone in the direction of you may only applaud once the piece is done, which means that you have to know which pauses are not the end of the piece. It, it assumes a lot of um, education and a lot of um, absorbing of rules that, you know, by, by the following thereof, you can tell how, uh, how in someone is. It's actually right. a very... It's a very classist thing. Actually, yeah. <laughs> and I think we've all been to concerts where there are some people who, at the end, at the end of a movement, um, are very, you know, hands in their laps, very, like, sort of waiting kind of expression, um, uh, knowing that something else is coming yet. And then other people who are very excited by the music and start applauding because they enjoyed it. And to them, that was a piece of music and it's over now and... and they're expressing how they feel about it. Um, and those people get shushed quite quickly. Yeah. And, and it breaks my heart every time. <laughs> because I see someone who is excited about music, is excited about the work that I'm doing. And, and I'm excited about that. I'm excited about the music and about someone else being excited by it. Um, and when they clap, I'm... It's reinforcing my own feelings about the music, and um, I'd I'd really like that to be more standard, and and along with that, like once I'd kind of um, told myself this is how I'm thinking about it now, it also made me realize that even the music that we play is varied. We don't always, I don't always want people to clap after I'm done playing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm playing something that I want I want to. Um, or the, or the music is making me feel contemplative or or sad or thoughtful or or rested or something that that is interrupted if there's applause and so and the whole range between those extremes so i'm i think more and more of my audience as as sort of the barometer by which i can tell if the performers have adequately expressed what the music is saying. Mm. If, if the audience is clapping wildly, um, that should tell you something about what they've been hearing and how they've yeah. absorbed it and how they're bouncing it back at you. It makes me think of like these big pop concerts, like in big, yeah, actually. Know, stadiums and like mm -hmm. the people there are screaming all of the time. They are connected. Like, they they no, know like, what's going on. moment of silence. Like you know what I mean? Like when yeah, Justin or there can Bieber be, that you, you, or when there is, yeah. when there's a hush, it really means something. It means that the yeah. music has worked for them in, you know, if, if the song has elicited that response. Like even just, like, I don't know, someone like Justin Bieber, like walking on a stage, like yep. all Star the power. start screaming, like yep. just the presence <laughs> of one of these people, like causes a huge like reaction. And I think you're right. Like it is a very like classicist move to like, only clap at the end of the concert. Yeah, very restrained, very, we know what the rules are. Uh, it's a it's a lot of learned um, good manners. I think it goes back to, like, sort of the power structure of music in a way. Um, like how we think that classical music is, like, or back in that day, or people see those types of activities as, like, morally superior or... Mm-hmm, and that's, 
I mean, if you go back historically, there's a lot of Baroque music, to use the example of the field that I'm working in, um, that was absolutely for the, the upper classes, uh, the people with money, the, um, the elite. And then there was also music that, um, that was played in church or at big public political ceremonies or it's, it's a little, it becomes more interesting to draw the line between, uh, who was, who's paying for the music and who's listening to the music and what do they know about music and how, how would that color, how they're responding to the music. Mm -hmm. So you teach a lot of students, you teach at the Sistema program, you have private students here and there. Um, how would you say that your Baroque background influences your teaching on kids that are playing on modern instruments? It does. <laughs> um, one of the things I noticed when I came back from my Baroque bubble and started playing modern viola again and started teaching people how to play on modern instruments is that uh, uh, doing that work, whether it was just doing a master's in music or, or whether it was specifically um, a master's in Baroque studies, um, it made me a better modern player. I'm just a better violist now. I think some of my chops are gone in the, like, the upper end and the faster stuff, but um, I listen better and I, I think about music, I think more holistically now than I did. And I would say, I think the thing, to get really technical, one thing that I'm much more attentive to and much more interested in teaching is um, around intonation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a big, scary, kind of traumatic word to use with string players. Um, because our instruments don't have frets, um, there's a lot of like strong emotions and a lot of stress around whether or not you are in tune. And I struggled a lot with this as a modern player, and then started studying Baroque music and realized, oh, there's no such thing as being in tune. Aha! Mm. Okay, <laughs> maybe I can think about this differently. And what I mean by that is that mathematically, there's actually a problem in the system. Mm. That means uh, you can't have a fully, perfectly, purely tuned octave. You're always going to be uh, making compromises somewhere. If you want your, your fifths to be pure, then your thirds will be slightly out of tune. If you're going to tune your thirds so that they're totally pure, your fifths are going to be out of tune. Um, listeners, Google, <laughs> Google temperament and yeah. historical tunings. Um, and I didn't, nobody was talking about that when I was studying modern viola. And so I absorbed it as very much a value judgment laden kind of thing. It's right or wrong. You're either in tune or you're not. Um, in the Baroque period, it's a lot more, you can tune stuff purely, which means that you're listening for a certain resonance um, and you know where you can get it. And then you are accepting that some intervals will be out of tune because you've chosen to make certain other ones to be pure. Um, and that was just very expansive to me and very freeing and um, allowed me to, to work on being quote unquote in tune um, in a more interesting way. Mm. I can be more curious about being, about like my tuning work. the pressure work. of being always perfect sort of like dissipated? with the knowledge that you can't always have yeah. everything perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree that, like, <laughs> in modern, like, string education, um, 
a lot of emphasis is placed on doing everything right. Mm-hmm. And everything has to be right all the time in order for you to be, like, a good player or considered to be a good player. Yeah, there's a pretty strong, um, kind of... Perfectionist? Yeah, and, <laughs> and like, the criteria for moving up a level is, you know, depending on the system that you're studying and your, your teacher's style and, and your own learning style, uh, it can be quite perfectionist and quite, uh, a system that maybe some people actually do really well in and, and mm-hmm. I don't know, my soul is a little too delicate for it. And, <laughs> yeah. and some, some of me was a bit crippled by, by what I absorbed with that. Um, so now when I'm teaching students w- with an aim to helping them play in tune, um, I do a lot more work, um, teaching them how to tune their instruments, even teaching them how to hear what a pure fifth sounds like, teaching them how to listen to beats, um, which is the, the result of, of an interval that's not purely tuned. You will get this, like, ba 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 at, at various tempos. Mm-hmm. You'll get a, a set of um, pulses in the, in, the, in the sound that tell you how close to pure you are. And... Um, uh, if I have, if I'm teaching a group, it's really interesting to get them to play chords together and and change um, which part of the chord you're you're playing. Take turns playing the the root or the third or the fifth, and and feel your note as part of a larger context and and working on um, tuning as a result of of balance of you know what should be louder so that this note is easier to hear. And I'm thinking more about scientifically, just explaining even what what uh, the tuning comma is. I love explaining this to like ten year olds because the they really comma. get it. Yeah. I don't know what this is. You don't know what this is. All right. Use your. <laughs> we missed this lesson when I was your teacher. Um, okay, so the the way to find the tuning comma is to take a keyboard instrument and tune a C to whatever whatever you've decided your C is. Um, and then go up a fifth and tune your G, pure G to the C, mm-hmm. and tune your D, a pure fifth from the G, and go up and up and up. If you if you keep going, and uh, once you run out of keys, you just go down to the bottom of the keyboard again. Keep tuning your fifths. Um, you'll eventually cover all 12 semitones, or all, all 11 mm-hmm. of those, those notes. Um, the next time you get back to a C... Play that along with your first C. If everything has been pure up till there, those C's will not be in tune. Hmm. They will be very obviously... Wrong. Like, they'll be gross. <laughs> they will be disgusting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh... That, I think, is... That's that's usually the, the, the way you can kind of prove to yourself that there's a problem with the system. You can also do it by doing thirds. Take your C again, or or whatever note you want to start on, and just keep going up major thirds until you get back to the, the note with the same name that you started with, and play those together. And it's going to be a, a different problem, but they're still not in tune. And so uh, music theorists call that the tuning comma, the distance between those two pitches that... Mm. It's basically like leftover sound that you have to put somewhere. Interesting. So um, it can be very interesting to actually um, go through, like read music history at least to Western art music history, as a set of um, solutions to this problem. Hmm. Because if you go back, you've got 
into like Italian Renaissance music, um, even even early Baroque stuff, you'll find that the keys that composers chose were very close to C major a lot of the time. Hmm. You'd stick close to keys that had not so many sharps and flats. And you would agree to tune all your instruments so that C major sounds really great. Mm-hmm. If you do that, then when you play in, say, E major, or even further keys removed from from your your very pretty middle ground, uh, you get some really, really colorful chords. <laughs> you get stuff that's wildly out of tune. And the cool thing about this is that then if you want to express something musically that is very strong, um, whether it's a very like excited heightened emotion or or extreme distress, um, uh, if you're if you are writing a cantata and they're singing about death or hell or or any of this like really big stuff, you'll actually go away from C major and you'll play in keys that sound bad because the music is expressing something bad. So if you're trying to express like the emotion of waiting in traffic or exactly, you know, <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah, yeah, <laughs> a cantata yeah, on standing at Portage and uh, Maine, like first world problem. <laughs> yep. See what you wouldn't yep. in C major. Or anxiety or climate crisis or any of these things that get us feeling yeah. rather about. Someone should write like a big symphony or like a messiah about the climate crisis. That's what I'd like to see. I <laughs> bet people are. I really? wouldn't be surprised if somebody must be doing it. Yeah. But if they're not, then they should. I agree. I should find them and then have them. If you're listening right now, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> consider this your <laughs> directive. Um, so just to wrap this up, Going forward, what would you like to see um, your career in Winnipeg do? Like, what is your goal hmm. going forward? I guess I just want to be allowed to keep doing this. Great. <laughs> I'm kind of, it's, it, feels, it feels like I've, I've ticked off a bunch of things, and I'm working with people that I enjoy working with, and um, I'm able to support myself doing it. Uh, I hope that it, it is something that is able to adapt with a changing world, um, and that doesn't get stagnant, I think. And I would love for there to be more people doing this music in Winnipeg, mm-hmm. um, apart from me and my ensemble, and yeah. and for there to be a network of, of groups of people who are doing this sort of thing. And I think that's, I think that's happening. I hope so. I, kind of... I hope that, like, if people see, like, you and your ensemble doing this stuff, they realize, oh... I can take that, like, harp out of the closet that I have never, like, touched, or, you know, Mm -hmm. I can learn, like, things that they're doing, too. I can do that, too. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, it can be a community that that begets more of this stuff. Yeah, and then, um, just a last question. I've decided that every guest that I have, you were the first, Tetian is the first (laughs) guest, by the way. I don't know if this is going to be the first episode, but it's the first episode that I'm recording. (laughs) Um, anyway, every guest that is on this podcast is asked to provide a listening suggestion. So what would be, like, your... If you had to suggest to someone, like, what... Like, any Baroque piece, what would it be? And you only get one. Okay. Well, since it's kind of in my head as an example of what we're talking about with uh, the tuning and musically expressing heavy stuff, uh, there's a... I don't know if it's a like a symphony or a concerto piece called Chaos. Okay. By the composer Jean Ferry Rebel. That is R E B E L. Okay. 
and there'll be lots of recordings on YouTube. The interesting thing about this piece is that the very first chord is all the notes of a D major scale played simultaneously. And then at the end, it resolves to a, a D major chord. And the, the journey from one to the other is very interesting and very, it's highly expressive. And maybe not right. what people think of when they think of Baroque music. Um, I will include the title in the description of this podcast so that people don't have to like try and spell Transcribe it my, my bad French. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much for being on this very first episode. Ooh, I'm honored. Thank you for asking me. And good luck in the future. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening and have a good day.